Once again, welcome to the Up Your Dialogue podcast. I am L.A. Londi. I'm here with my co-host in crime, J. Scott Harden. And we are back once again with a new podcast on uh, on a new topic. Uh, for those of you who haven't listened to us before, uh, the Up Your Dialogue podcast focuses on clear communication about the uh, most interesting topics of the day, uh, ranging from uh, political to cultural, to theological, philosophical. Uh, everything's on the table here at Up Your Dialogue, and we uh, have conversations uh, between Jay Scott and myself uh, that are uh, clear, uh, where we let the other person speak, uh, where we um, have two two different worldviews um, represented by the agnostic viewpoint as well as the Christian viewpoint, and um, but we don't represent these viewpoints as necessarily being opposed to each other, but uh, rather uh, giving us the opportunity to see a particular issue uh, from two different viewpoints, from two different lenses, and uh, seeing what comes of that, hopefully providing productive results, and how we can move forward on some of these issues in a positive direction. So for those of you that are uh, have listened to the podcast. We hope that uh, you've enjoyed this kind of approach. We think it's kind of a novel approach to podcasts these days, somewhat of a long format approach where one person gives their uh, gives their points uh, without interruption. The other person then has a chance to respond. And oddly enough, um, we often come down on the same sides of an issue, um, even though we are uh, functioning from two different worldviews. And also oddly enough, uh, we're able to discuss these topics with, uh, you know, congenial, uh, approach, a non-combative approach, and uh, that's just not something that we can often see in uh, the online world today. Uh, so we hope that we hope it's been informative, and we, we hope it continues to be. We do hope to be doing these podcasts on a more regular basis. Um, we had some things going on. We're actually in season four, I should mention. Uh, season four, last season, we only did a couple podcasts, and, and that's kind of how we've been doing this thing so far. I think we have about twenty podcasts in total um, over the first three seasons, and uh, we do plan on uh, being a little bit more subtle now. We do plan on doing more in the future, uh, possibly every weekend, if not every other weekend. But um, uh, we'll be informing you of those podcast drops hopefully on a regular basis. Catch us on Twitter uh, and uh, we'll be keeping people in touch with what's going on here. So the way we do this is uh, Jay Scott and I talk often and we talk throughout the week and we decide on what the topic is going to be for the podcast. Pretty impromptu and uh, because there's so much going on in the world today, we don't even have like a schedule of topics because we really don't need to. So much goes on during the week. Just in our discussions, we pretty much come up with a topic as a result of our uh, communication through the week. And so this week uh, wasn't, it was probably the easiest time of picking a topic uh, that we've had, given the fact that uh, Roe v. Wade uh, is in jeopardy of being turned back to the states based on not even a ruling. We haven't even had a ruling, probably won't have a ruling until the summertime. But in February, I believe February 10th, if my information is correct, um, Justice Alito uh, wrote an opinion uh, piece that was circulated through uh, the justices. And as a result of that, five justices signed on to a fairly scathing um, piece by Alito in response to a current case on the books that was put before them in December, I believe, uh, that actually would overturn Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision of Roe v. Wade, um, if it moves forward. And so in case you don't know about this or understand how it took place, how are we even talking about this? 
we shouldn't even be talking about that. Uh, the decision hasn't been handed down, like I said, and won't be handed down until summertime. So we shouldn't even be having a podcast on this because we shouldn't know about it. Uh, it's it's always been precedent that uh, when these decisions are being made by the justices, that these are circulated throughout the justices, and they give their they give their stance and their opinions. They put them in writing. People sign on to them. The justices sign on to them, and then it is debated uh, until a final is produced, and then that's what we actually see when the when the opinion uh, of the court is actually handed down formally. But we have a leak on our hand. Um, I don't believe, unless Jay Scott has information for us that I'm unaware of, I don't believe that the leak has been found yet. Um, although Chief Justice Roberts, who by the way, is, is not formally uh, in the draft opinion on the pro side of Roe v. Wade uh, being shot down. Um, it's, it's it's five justices, but um, Chief Chief Justice Roberts has abstained. So right now it's a 5-3, I believe, with, with uh, the Chief Justice not uh, formally declaring in the leak opinion. Um, but he said that he is going to get to the bottom of this leak and uh, has um, has you know put the put the word out that he's going to move forward on figuring out who this was. Uh, but anyway, that being said, uh, we have a leak on our hands, and that's how we know about this. And so, of course, this is sent. Um, what many articles have said is shockwaves through um, through the entire country, uh, because what would be the result of this uh, would be that Roe v. Wade would be returned back to the states, and many different state all the different states have different laws on the books in regards to Roe v. Wade, uh, which would make some states. Um, would make Roe v. Wade, or I should say abortion, would make abortion um, illegal, uh, or would some states would put massive restrictions. Uh, some states would still be lenient and uh, where you could get an abortion much like you could now. Um, and so in my state of North Carolina, uh, where I where I'm record from, um, Chase Scott recording from the great state of Arizona, uh, in my state, it seems that uh, abortion would still be legal. However, there would be restrictions on it. I believe it would be illegal um, after 20 weeks. And um, there would also be specific um, um, restrictions on abortions in regard to um, you know the process of actually getting one. Um, uh, through the course of my uh, looking into these things, I found that there's different states that have various uh, approaches to Roe v. Wade in regards to the topic of abortion and, and how this would play out. Um, California, New York, and some other of the blue states, things wouldn't change very much. Uh, but in a state like um, Alabama and a state such as Texas, uh, things wouldn't be as clear. And then in other states, you would have um, major restrictions. And then some states even putting um, legislation through to, to make it illegal. And of course, now you've got the Democrats who are um, trying to rustle up enough votes, if they can, to pass federal legislation in regards to Roe. Um, and uh, so lots of things lots of things going on with lots of impacts in regards to abortion. So that's our topic for the night. And uh, we are going to turn over to Jay Scott for some initial comments from him. Thank you, LA. Welcome everyone once again to the Up Your Dialogue podcast. We did have the issue present itself during our week. Um, that kind of drove us as to what was going to be the topic this time. And the reversal, the possible reversal of Roe v. Wade uh, is going to be one of the biggest legal decisions, in, you know, in decades or if ever. Um, and so I thought I would recall people's attention to who who are the justices on the Supreme Court. There are nine of them. And if listeners are anything like me, they don't always pay attention to who these people are. Um at every minute, but we have a court that is apparently a conservative majority uh, in the court that is in favor of reversing one of the biggest decisions during my lifetime, Roe v. Wade, 1973. 
Um, and so Chief Justice LA brings up Justice Roberts, John Roberts, who was, I just pull up a, a list of names and dates, who became a member of the court in 2005. Um, so this is a uh, presumed to be conservative uh, judge nominated by uh, President Bush II, along with, uh, at that time, Samuel Alito, now Associate Justice, appeared, appointed to the court in 2006. The oldest serving member Clarence Thomas, um, very famous hearings in his case from 1991 uh, when he was appointed to the court. Um, and so he's, you know, he's the elder of the court uh, now, age 73. Roberts is 67. Um, Alito is 72. So some of the newer members on the court are ones that have been um, nominated and approved under the presidencies of Barack Obama and Donald J. Trump. So the Obama appointees that serve on the court to ladies Sonia Sotomayor, 2009-67, and Elena Kagan, 2010, she's age 62. After that, there are a trio of these Trump nominees, some of which were especially controversial at the hearings. And these are Neil Gorsuch, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, appointed within a three-year span, 2017 to 2020. And I'll note to the ages of these three uh, newer justices, Gorsuch being 54, Kavanaugh 57, and Barrett 50 years old. Uh, finally, we have a new uh, confirmed member of the Supreme Court whose process recently completed, Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, and so we can presume that she will not be part of any conservative majority striking down uh, Roe v. Wade. And so these justices that are on board for now with Alito's initial opinion, something the public is not supposed to have seen, but we all did because it was leaked, uh, is uh, Alito, Clarence Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. Judge Roberts is unclear, but he may, if he ends up deciding that way, that will be 6-3 instead of 5-4. So we have this leak of an opinion and very rarely uh, are Supreme Court opinions like this uh, revealed, although that's not to say I understand that it's never happened. But in a case striking down of this magnitude, Roe v. Wade type of thing, uh, I can think of no example of the magnitude that has ever happened. Um, and even the examples that I have picked out were didn't seem to be quite as striking or major as this. And so everybody wonders who is the leaker? Um, and opinions vary. I suppose the, the, you know, the main opinions guess is that this is a leak by a clerk or someone in the staff or purview of one of the liberal justices. Um, others I hear say maybe it was one of the conservative uh, clerks working for a conservative justice that leaked it for reasons that are not entirely clear to me. And then aside from that, you have to wonder, at least theoretically, is it possible that a Supreme Court justice signed off specifically on the release of the opinion, which would be, you know, outrageous for a, an actual judge to do that. So somebody somewhere leaked it and we'll find out who that is uh, eventually presumably. But for me, I don't know how LA feels about this, but for me, the identity of the leaker is less important than the issue. The issue of the reversal in the case in question is so huge that it's bigger than any leak. Um, at least that's my contention. Something like this, which is going to affect millions of lives, uh, tens of millions of lives, born and unborn, uh, so for me, the identity of the leaker while of interest um, doesn't outweigh the fact that this will have a huge impact on tens of millions of lives in America. What do you say about this, L.A.? Is the leak the sensation or the content of Justice Alito's opinion? Uh, that's a good question.
question. I, I think that the the identity of the leaker isn't necessarily um, the most important thing. Uh, I think right now it's it's mostly thought of that it was probably a clerk in, in Sotomayor's. Uh, there's four clerks, as I understand it, to each Supreme Court justice. Um, and so uh, I think it's probably something someone in one of the more left-leaning judges, such as Sotomayor's camp. Um, that would be my guess. But if that's the case, or if it's somebody else, I don't think that matters as much as uh, what what needs to be the response to the leak. And we don't want to underestimate the issue of, of something like this being leaked. And we certainly don't want to set a precedent uh, for it being okay to leak these things. Uh, there's a reason why uh, this is either the first, or if it's not the first time something like this was leaked, it rarely ever happens. And that's because, um, you know, influencing, trying to influence the judges in this way is something that we can't tolerate. Um, there's a process by which this takes place, and it's important to keep that process from being manipulated. Um, justices are not people who are elected. Justices are people who have lifetime appointments, uh, and there's a reason for that. The reason is that uh, they are not to be making judgment calls based on popular opinion. That's that's for elected officials to do. Uh, we have a lot of checks and balances in our system set forth by uh, the founding fathers and forward, and this is one of the reasons why. So if we start to manipulate the, the decisions of the just by leaking their opinions before they're formally brought forward, then that's a problem. Uh, we can't have justices being manipulated like this. We can't have threats. We can't be doxing um, these these justices like has already been done. Um, we could see that coming. Um, and we certainly don't want to put pressure um, one way or the other. And that's where a lot of people are getting wrong, getting this wrong. And when I see the reports being done on it, when I see articles being written on it, when I see uh, TikTok videos, and Twitter feeds and things like this, where uh, you hear people talking about this and they're saying, you know, the, the justices should be taking into consideration what the people want. Well, no, they shouldn't. They shouldn't be taking into consideration what the people want. They should be taking into consideration what the law says. That's exactly what Alito is doing in his in his uh, write-up on this. He is very opposed to the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, but he's not opposed to it because he has some political bent or because he thinks that's what the people want in the culture, and he shouldn't. He should be looking directly at the legislation itself, directly at the opinion itself, and, and he should be making his decision on that solely, and so should the other justices. And they should be in conference over this, and they should come up with, you know, what is the right decision based on how the law uh or how the opinion in Roe v. Wade was written and settled. So um, I think a lot of people don't understand how the judiciary works. I think they, they don't understand what the purpose is and how it functions. Um, if they did understand it, I think they would understand Alito's position a little bit better. Uh, they may they may still not agree with it, but they wouldn't be saying the things that they're saying as far as, uh, you know, uh, what was it? Um, one of the senators, one of the left sen uh, senators on the left, um, I forget who it was now, uh, went on a rant and said, you know, 60 some percent of the people People are in disagreement with um, with Alito and the five justices justices who have signed on to this, and that is completely inconsequential. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if ninety five percent of uh, the country is for Roe v. Wade. All that matters is is Roe v. Wade um, should it stand as it's written. And just about everyone that looks at Roe v. Wade non politically, strictly as a uh, specifically something uh, from the point of view of the law of uh, the Constitution. Um, 
you know, strictly in that vein, uh, more the majority opinion on Roe v. Wade is that it's bad law. It's a it's a bad. It's forget about the case. Forget about right now and for our purposes in this discussion. Forget about whether or not you're for abortion or not. Forget about whether you're pro-choice or pro-life. Forget about what the public opinion is. solely on the basis of the law and the way that it's brought forward and written and decided upon. In the case of Roe v. Wade, the majority opinion that I've seen from from lawyers and from and from judges um, is that it's it's bad. It's it's a poorly it's a poor decision. Um, and so when you take it take at it from that point of view, then you know you don't see Alito's write up as politically being motivated, and it shouldn't be politically motivated, and we shouldn't have leaks like this that try to make it political. Um, and so. I, where I don't think the specific identity of the leaker is necessarily the important thing, I do think it's something that uh, Chief Justice Roberts needs to uh, confront. He needs to find out who it was. They need to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. They need to be made an example out of, and it needs to be shown that uh, we are not going to tolerate this type of action in the future. Um, your thoughts on that? Yeah, we'll talk about, go back to the the who does the leaking uh, problem. I like LA's point, which is that the leak of the opinion is an attempt to influence the decision of the judge. And anything that is an outside attempt to influence the decision of a judge is wrong. The founding fathers of our country separated the government. Everybody will go back to their elementary school civics lesson to three branches, the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary. As LA notes, the judiciary the Supreme Court justices in particular, federal judges and Supreme Court justices are, they serve for life. They're not elected. There's no two-year or four-year cycle or something like that. And so the idea of the Founding Fathers was that this would be a check and balance against corruption and a government going off the rails. That's why it's there. So unlike a congressman or congressperson, the justice isn't there to run a re-election campaign uh, two years later or or four or six years later. These are meant to be a social and cultural check and balance against rash decisions by the mob. That's what they're for. And their decisions are to be respected. What I mean by that is for those people who disagreed, Roe v. Wade, um, I'm one of them. But Roe v. Wade has been the law of the land since 1973. That's basically 50 years. And that law has generally, overwhelmingly been respected by Americans who, even when they disagree with a judicial decision, do agree that the Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter of legal decisions in the United States, whether it's for or against the particular that that you may hold. And so if Roe v. Wade is overturned, which could be the case, and seems to be based on Alito's uh, initial draft opinion, uh, then will all parties respect the the sanctity of the fact that we have a judicial branch and respect and follow the law? Well, leaking, leaking this opinion, Alito's opinion, obviously contradicts any type of respect for the law. I've heard uh, pundits say that the person who, if and when caught, will be subject to being disbarred if it's a lawyer. But I don't think that's enough. I don't think it should be a slap to the career. I think if you are violating the sanctity of the Supreme Court, then you have committed a crime of some kind. And um, there should be a punishment beyond some legal repercussions. I, I don't want to see the leaker end up being the new star pundit on some liberal network news channel uh, because it's not okay. Secondly, what about this Roe v. Wade um, 
L.A. brings up the point that it's bad law. Well, why is it bad law? Uh, particularly when, for one, Supreme Court justices signed off on this, and these were lawyers and custodians of our law. And secondly, many legal scholars have been supporting the decision of Roe v. Wade in the five decades since. So I think to myself, okay, J. Scott, you're not a leading legal light in the nation's history, but you have some knowledge of history. And for two, you have a copy of this little document that is sometimes inconvenient to uh, liberals in America, but it's called the United States Constitution. And as I hear defense of Roe v. Wade from 1973, the focus tends to be that this must be part of the U.S. Constitution. So you look through the Constitution and you won't find anything about abortion, the word abortion named in the document. But what they do refer you to are a couple of amendments um, which are claimed in support of Roe v. Wade, this right to abortion. In particular, I'm noting Amendment Number 9, and I've had a few discussions with some folks on the left about this. Uh, and Amendment 9 is great. It's just very short, and by which I mean a single sentence. No big deal, right? And it's says, and I quote, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people, end quote. So you get into this notion of enumeration. Uh, in other words, what is spelled out in the Constitution is constitutional law, and what is not spelled out in the Constitution, but still governable, uh, or such is the debate, can we govern based on things that are not in the Constitution? Stay tuned, uh, dear listener, because this isn't the 1780s anymore. Much time has gone by. But the point of Amendment 9 looks to me in that single sentence that if it's enumerated in the Constitution, whatever right is stated there doesn't have impact on what is not stated in there. What is not stated in there are, and I quote, uh, certain rights retained by the people. So the idea is if it's not in the federal constitution, then the right reverts to the states. And if those are not specified in state law, then those are reserved to the localities. And whenever those are not specified by law, they revert to the people. And since there's no abortion clause in the United States Constitution, the next level is that it reverts to the states. And we have 50 of them, and they are going to have different laws if Roe v. Wade is overturned. You'll get uh, some states, perhaps a Texas and an Oklahoma or elsewhere, where there is no legal abortion, period. Uh, and that will exclude things like the health of the mother. On the other hand, you may get states like uh, California or New York, where you might have a woman having a conversation with her doctor in the days postpartum to decide if that abortion should occur. And you'll have in the states laws everywhere in between. Uh, it could be 15 weeks. It could be 20, it could be 30. If you're in California, it could be, it could be you know, nine months and a week uh, before a decision might be reached. So it's not that abortion will become illegal in America. And I think people are unclear about that. People that I talk to and see think it's just no more legalized abortion in the United States. Not true. If Alitos uh, and his conservative colleagues strike this down, Roe v. Wade, it doesn't mean that abortion is illegal in the United States. It means that the answer to that issue and question is going to be decided state by state. So one of the reasons why uh, Roe v. Wade has always felt suspicious to me is because it's an unenumerated so-called right, a right that is not present in the Constitution, in the founding documents of our country. What do you think about this difference, L.A., between uh, rights guaranteed by the Constitution, federal uh, enumerated rights versus states' rights? Well, another good question. Um, you know, when you talk about rights, uh, this is a obvious sticking point with uh, for someone like me on the on the Christian worldview. Um, rights 
are something that are given to us by our creator. Uh, rights are not something that's handed down by man. So before you talk about, in my view, and of course, I'll be interested to hear your take on this. Um, by the way, everyone, this is the interesting point about when we're actually going to get into the topic of abortion is that, believe it or not, you've got an agnostic and a Christian that are both pro-life on this podcast. So there you, there you go. Um, but uh, <laughs> in addition, uh, outside of that, um, Jay Scott can elaborate on his, on his view of this. But my view of this is that before we talk about states' rights and federal rights in regard to what your rights are, we have to understand where rights come from. If you don't understand that, then you're off on the wrong foot already. Man does not create our right. And regardless if you're a religious person or if you're not a religious, and if you are a religious person, it doesn't matter what religion you're ascribed to. Um, you live in a country that has, as J. Scott pointed out, documents that govern the country. And in those documents, or in one specific document that I'm thinking of, <laughs> the, the rights that we experience are not man-made. They are given to us by the Creator. And you live in a country that says such and that is governed by it. Whether you like it or not, that's the way it is. So our rights are given to us by our creator, not man, and that is something that needs to be understood. Now, you may want to change that to say that rights are not given to us by a creator and that we establish our own rights as human beings. And if that's the case, you can go for that and you can try and you know bring the country that we have uh, lived and fought for and, and assimilated into uh, down its foundations. You can bring those down and recreate your own as was attempted to do in, historically uh, in other nations, such as French Revolution, such as uh, communist uh, Russia, uh, so on and so forth. I'm not sure you would like to live in a country like that. I'm not sure that's what you actually want, but you would probably get something along those lines unless you can think of uh, some other utopian place uh, in some fantasy world where uh, you know, you've had a wonderful nation with, uh, with no issues and no problems where uh, rights were granted by man. That being said, if you moved past the idea of rights and where the actual origins rights are, uh, once you move past that and you get to uh, federal rights versus state rights, in, in other words, once you you understand where the origin of rights are, how are they imposed on society? And so originally, the idea was that uh, there would be some, there would be some, in some way, that the federal government would be given rights. Uh, and during the time of the Civil War, this was a big issue, of course. Uh, we all think of the Civil War as uh, as a topic of slavery, and rightly so. And it was the topic of the day. But also, there was this idea of, of states' rights versus federal rights. Uh, should the federal, should the idea be that the federal government was going to make a decision for all the states follow? Or were we going to leave this idea of slavery up to the state? And of course, war fought. Uh, some states wanted slavery, other states didn't. And uh, we all know the story about how that ended. Um, but in regards to that, that's how it goes in our country. Um, most things were designed to be left to the state. Um, and that was because it, it allows for states to govern themselves. Uh, the idea is that the more local you go, the more laws make sense. Uh, when you have low, uh, when you have specific laws that, that refer just to a city or a county, then those laws really should be decided by that city or county. It makes more sense to the city and county if they're making the laws that affect people. Those people have skin in the game. Those people uh, make laws that directly impact them. And it may be a very different situation from that city or county in North Carolina versus a city or county in California. Um, and so it made sense. Uh, but in some cases, it doesn't make sense. In some cases, you do need, in the case of uh, whether it's the military or whether it's infrastructure with cross-state uh, highways and uh, these different things for uh, the feds to step in and, and make decisions. But but in, in most cases, um, things are always best left up to as local as you can get them. Now, 
um, in regards specifically to Roe, uh, Roe v. Wade is uh, is is something that is also better off left state. Um, and it's better to not federalize something like this because you have such a variety of opinion on this subject from Americans across the land um, that to federalize something like this decision is just not going, it's just not something that is going to work as well as if you can give California the right to make their own decisions on this topic of abortion in the same way that uh, North Carolina would have their own rights to make a decision because then you would be able to um, uh, fight this decision or whether you're pro or con on it at your more local level. So if I don't want the state of North Carolina to have abortion, then I can much more easily fight this within my state than I can fight at federal level. Um, And the federal government really doesn't have any they really don't have specific necessity to be ruling on something as far as from a legislative standpoint. Now, when these cases go up and, and ultimately make it to Supreme Court, as they do often when they start at the local level and move their way up to Supreme Court, then that's fine and that's that's prudent. Um, and that's how the Supreme Court has gotten several cases in that way, which is fine and which is necessary in some cases. But for the most part, I think this can be settled at a state level. And then you can rally your troops in the state uh, and local level to um, affect this law in whatever way that you can get the people to do so. Um, and so that's just my opinion on, I don't think there's, I don't think people should be as up in arms as they are on this particular case because it'll go back to the state. It's not that Roe v. Wade being overturned is going to ban abortion. Now, I would be in favor of banning abortion. I would be in favor of a federal ban on abortion, but I wouldn't promote um, having a federal ban done necessarily because I don't believe uh, in the idea that federally speaking, we should be making laws. Like uh, I would prefer and ultimately in my perfect world, uh, you would have each state take up the issue of abortion and ban it within each state. Um, but if some states choose not to ban it um, and just put restrictions on it, and then other states choose to legalize it uh, with even no restrictions, then uh, people can choose to go live in those states. Um, I would not personally to live in those states, um, but people can. And so that's what creates the republic that we have. Uh, that's what makes the United States, the United States of America, um, a great place to live, uh, a place that most people want to live uh, because we have this republic set up. So even though I am pro-life and against abortion, and and would always vote for a ban on practice. Uh, we can talk about the actual ins and outs of abortion itself later on in the podcast, or we'll get there. But I personally, even though I would be for a state-level ban on abortion, I would not be for a federal federal legislation on it, whether uh, in the pro or the con. Um, specifically, as it relates to abortion, as we talk about the legal issue a little bit further, um, an interesting article I read on on the actual law itself, like we're talking about Justice, Justice Harry A. Black. Blackman uh, authored a very long opinion on Roe back in 1973, um, in which he included the medical history of abortion, citing the views of Persians, Greeks, Romans, and others, and quoting two versions of the Hippocratic Oath and early English authors dating to the 13th century. Um, however, he did not quote a provision in the Constitution that a protected abortion right. And um, I think this is important to understand why Roe v. Wade is bad law. Roe v. Wade is bad law because it does what I said in the beginning shouldn't be done. It's taking into to consideration uh, what the thoughts of the time are on what people think and what their opinion is on this particular topic without going through and understanding what rights are actually guaranteed in the Constitution. Because if you constitutionally, if you approach the subject of abortion, you're not going to have, at least in my opinion, in the opinion of the majority of legal scholars, you're not going to have the grounds to come up with the decision that Roe v. Wade comes up with. As I understand it, even the left, even left-leaning judges, um, even the most far left-leaning judges, 
judges that have served on the court, on the Supreme Court over the years, have also said that Roe v. Wade is bad law in this way, even though that they wish that it would go further in, in, in legalizing abortion. They thought that um, the path that Roe took was a bad path. And this, uh, uh, like I said, was even the opinion of some of the most left-leaning judges that served on the court. Um, so uh, Blackman, uh, Justice Harry Blackman based his ruling on the idea that, cons- that the Constitution protects a broad right to privacy is implied by the 14th Amendment. Well, that's a stretch. Um, that's a, a very large stretch in how the Constitution might apply to something like abortion. And I think most legal scholars understand that that's much too broad of a stretch. So, uh, you know, I could go much further on the idea of rights, and I could go much further on, uh, from my perspective, uh, on the legal matters of such case, but I'm actually more interested in the agnostic view of, of rights um, and how that from that lens they are applied and moved that not only the origin of such rights from the agnostic view, but then uh, once the origin is explained, how you push those through from a federal and state perspective. Amazing. So there are two issues that LA brings up. First of all, how can it possibly be that an agnostic and a man of God, a Christian thinker, can be on the same page? But the topic is the right to life. And so morally speaking, it isn't such a stretch, I maintain, religious or otherwise, to draw a line in the sand and say, do not harm others. Do not harm others unless there's some compelling reason why you must. And termination of a pregnancy is not such a reason. Uh, Where do these rights come from if you're an agnostic? Again, I refer to some of the founding documents. So I take myself to be an American, and these documents are important to Americans regardless of their uh, religion or the time period in which they live. So for LA, these rights are descendant from God. And if you are an agnostic, uh, you'll have to go with my view that says the rights are descended from our founding documents in America. And so here, just to uh, direct people to them, it's probably been a while. If you haven't had a chance, check out the Declaration of Independence, uh, July 4th, 1776, our Independence Day, our first. And it says, and I'm quoting here, just the opening line, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, when in the course of human events, becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they declare the causes held in separation. Behold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and happiness. That's what the Declaration of Independence says. And a couple of things are going on there. First of all, you're going to find a critical word like creator. Now, I didn't uh, see enumerated by the founding fathers, which or in what fashion should be the description of this creator. But suffice it to say, they all agreed and signed that there was one. And for a Christian thinker, then you get a direct answer as to what that creator means. If you're like me, it's good enough that the founding fathers should have said that there is one, and we'll take it on that basis. Um, secondly, the, the the first paragraph of that says that if you intend to dissolve or otherwise mess around with, with the connecting political bands among peoples, uh, and if you're going to assume powers of the earth, so you can have whatever religious belief also protecting the amendment. Nevertheless, if you're going to live amongst each other, there is a power of the earth. In other words, there is a, a governing... Um, 
practical set of agreements that compel citizens or peoples of a nation, this nation, to do what they can to get along with each other. And one of the ways that we can get along with each other is to not kill others. Um, and so t- this is what really uh, the abortion issue is about. Under what circumstances would it be okay to kill a, a child? Well, you're going to hear a million things. It's not really a child. It's just a fetus. It's just a bit of goo. They're going to have, you know, if it's a heartbeat or if it isn't a heartbeat, uh, or if it's a, within a certain, you know, time frame after the contact fertilization of sperm and egg, you're going to get a whole bunch of different answers. For me, if a federal law, if we, for example, had an amendment to the Constitution prohibiting abortion, I would support that. In the absence of that, if there was a state law in my state that said abortion is illegal, I would support that. If that doesn't happen and there's a law in a county or town that says abortion is illegal, I would support that. And if none of those suffice, then I will support the prohibition, the banning of abortion in my own personal life. And that is a conversation which I would have with myself and my partner. Uh, I'm going to go to the point here where we say that whoever that partner of mine is creating life is a woman. Uh, it's not a Wimexin or some gray area. That's not how the biology of our species works. At some point, we have to acknowledge that too. I, Looking back, remember that 1973 was a very critical year in the history of America. A few things happened. Uh, one, at, in the very last days of December of 72, we had last people ever step on the moon. And listeners of our podcast will know that I'm all about space exploration. And right around the line of 1973 is where we stopped doing that 50 years ago, and we still haven't done it again. That is a complete waste of time for our species to have the technology, the capability and the wherewithal to explore the universe. And for 50 years of retardation, we choose not to. Also in 1973, the APA made it um, removed homosexuality as a mental disorder. Now, whether rightly or wrongly, but 1973 is your key area there where it was no longer a disorder in the DSM guideline. Um, and so things change when you stop exploring outer space. Things change when homosexuality is now presumed to be a normal state um, of psychology. And finally, Roe v. Wade, also 1973. And you have now a right to an abortion, and it depends on which trimester. The first one, the government can't interfere. Second trimester is a murky as to what can happen. A third trimester is where they were focused on avoiding abortion to happen. Later, that stuff was amended and so abortion uh, can occur after windows where we thought it couldn't uh, in the 1970s it's still legal. So this is one response as to how an agnostic could possibly get on board with this. Well, we just look to the founding documents of our country. And if the idea of a creator was good enough for Thomas Jefferson, if it was good enough for John Adams, and it was good enough for the other founders, well, then it's good enough for me. Uh, secondly, as to the constitutionality of Roe v. Wade, we talked about the Ninth Amendment. Um, and I didn't, in terms of the enumeration of laws, didn't see anything there that was helpful to the cause of Roe v. Wade. But the main amendment they look at, and LA has mentioned this, which is the 14th Amendment. So these are part of a trio of post-Civil War Reconstruction era amendments uh, that went through a constant constitutional process, meaning they passed two thirds of the House and Senate and three quarters of the state legislators, le- legislatures, such as were allowed. But the 14th Amendment 
is where Roe v. Wade derives the heart of its privacy concept. Yeah, Roe v. Wade is a case, and now it's become a precedent, and now it's become part of what we call case law. But is this stuff really in the Constitution, I wonder? And so I actually had a look at the 14th Amendment, which I hadn't seen in a long time, just to see if there was anything about abortion or privacy or what in there could possibly inform a decision like Roe v. Wade. The 14th Amendment is split up into sections. And it's relatively brief, and some of the sections seem like they have no relevance to the issue of abortion. But just in case, let's have a look at Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. Ratified in 1868, it says, and I quote, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction or protection of the law. That's section one, the main section of the 14th Amendment. Well, what about the other sections? Did we miss anything there? I get it, and it's definitely worth looking at. We'll go back to Section 1. But meanwhile, Section 2. A representative shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, counting the whole number of persons in each state, excluding Indians not taxed. But when the right to vote of any election for the choice of electors for President and Vice President of the United States, representatives in Congress, the executive and judicial officers of a state, or the members of the legislature thereof is denied to any of the male inhabitants of of such state being 21 years of age and citizens of the United States or in any way abridged except except for participation in rebellion or other crime, the basis of representation therein shall be reduced in the proportion which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens 21 years of such state. I don't hear anything in there about abortion. I don't hear anything there about the right to choose. I don't hear anything about the abrogation of the rights of the citizen either in the country or of any. Uh, section 3, and this is a rather important one considering the recent acquittal of Representative Marjorie Green Taylor Greene in Georgia, who was accused of insurrection and was exonerated by the courts this past week and other news. But Section 3 says, No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state ledger or as an executive or judicial officer of state to support the constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. Okay, so you can't be a representative in the government uh, unless if you have committed insurrection or rebellion. We got that. Section 3. Section 4 says, this has to do with the debt, the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment or pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion shall not be questioned. But neither the United States nor any state shall assume or pay any debt or obligation incurred in aid of insurrection or rebellion to the United States or any claim for the loss or emancipation of any slave. But all such debts, obligations, and claims shall be held illegal and void. Section 5 says the Congress shall have power to enforce by appropriate legislation provisions of this article. That's the entirety of the 14th Amendment. No insurrection and rebellion uh, no debt of the government will be uh, no debt or of the government will be paid if you commit insurrection and rebellion so all of that leads us back to section one which I said we would talk about we we read it and it just says that the states don't enforce laws uh, denying the r rights of the federal government 
and the federal government also has no right to deny that, any state cannot deprive a person of life, liberty, or property without due process. So this goes to the heart of our abortion issue, which is, is that offspring, is that post-sperm and egg contact a life or isn't it? Well, we have in America a huge debate over this. The debate is is not writ large within me personally, but I see my fellows and I see something like half the country uh, confused about this issue. And you're not supposed to deprive somebody of their life without due process. Well, is that is that what Roe v. Wade is? A, a now a, a due process wherein a living thing can be denied uh, and deprived of its life. Is that what Roe v. Wade is for? Kind of a, a case law, uh, like a grammar to the 14th Amendment that says, well, you've got to dot your I's and cross your T's, so now we do have a way to deprive somebody of life because made a process? Is that what the Founding Fathers meant when they wrote this Constitution? Is indeed that what was meant in 1868? Did it have anything to do with abortion? Well, LA's been telling us that Roe v. Wade case law seems to be legally flimsy, and I don't pretend, again, to be have some great legal mind, so let's just look at the damn document. Where does it say in the 14th Amendment that women have privacy over their bodies and anything else that's in their body isn't the living form and therefore there shouldn't be any uh, rights to live in that regard? What do you think about this 14th Amendment, uh, L.A., not only the the statement in the Constitution, the text, but also this idea of Roe v. Wade as a a non-constitutional case version. If you could do Roe v. Wade, do you think it would be possible to make up anything and and then say it's constitutional or part of the law because we just made it up? Is that what the Founding Fathers or the writers of the amendments meant? Well, I think a lot of people just simply don't care what the Founding Fathers meant. What were they actually trying to get at? What was the context of what they were doing at the time and and how does it matter? Um, A lot of people, especially on the left these days, they simply just want to recreate the Constitution. Some want to just rip the documents up and throw them in the garbage because they're not valid for today. And we can obviously create something much better than someone uh, previous times created. Uh, so there's that type of thinking that is not, you know, is not, um, you know, that that's what they would argue if they were the, here on this podcast. Um, and of course, we don't accept that. Um, so what what were they thinking? They, they clearly weren't thinking um, some of the things that are being brought about uh, nowadays. Uh, but what does that matter to us? I mean, how does that hold precedent for us? I talk about this often in um, at, uh, at church when I'm teaching when I'm teaching classes there, and we're talking about you know what does the Bible mean for us today? How could it possibly mean something for us today? What was the context of um, the church in the first century um, as they heard these things as opposed to the church now and how we we hear these things. Um, it, it's kind of similar in that vein uh, in regard to the Constitution and the way that we look at it. Um, but in specifically regarding what this issue that we're talking about uh, in the 14th Amendment, um, Jay Scott read it to us. And one, one of the hot topics of the 14th Amendment really is the word person. Um, it's already been talked about a little bit, but all persons born are naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States. And no state shall make or enforce any law which shall bridge the privileges or immunities of such citizens. So when is a person a person? I mean, that's a big question. And how you go about interpreting the 14th Amendment is going to be how you answer that question. What is a person? Um, And so 
If you talk to someone that is religious, um, more times than not, they're going to tell you that a person is a person at conception. Then, of course, you could talk to somebody else that says a person is not a person until they're born. And then you have the next word after the word persons, which is born. So all persons born. So is a person not a person until they're born? Did uh, the drafters of this amendment think that a person was not a person until the person was born and naturalized um, and therefore become become a citizen. And so if you read articles on this particular thing, although most legal scholars will tell you that Roe Roe v. Wade hanging its hat on the 14th Amendment as it's written is not good case law, they will also make the point that a person isn't a person until they're born. And um, so you can't use the 14th Amendment really to enforce Roe v. Wade, uh, and they shouldn't have used that, and they shouldn't have gone in that direction. But you also can't use the 14th Amendment as a way to make abortion illegal. Uh, because the 14th Amendment is not talking about the fetus in the womb. And then you get into the gray areas of when a person is a person. If you go down that route, that says, well, you know, when is it viable? And that's where you have uh, laws like in the state of North Carolina that say 20 weeks. We decide that a person is a person at 20 weeks. We decide that uh, you cannot terminate an abortion after 20 weeks, the current law in the state of North Carolina. So if Roe v. Wade is struck down, then in the state of North Carolina, apparently a person is a person at 20 um, and uh, prior to 20 weeks, not a person. So uh, the gray areas are something that's kind of invoked by us trying to determine when a person is a person. So human beings are trying to decide when do rights from our creator, when are they bestowed on a living thing, such as a human being? Um, if you're to take pro-life stance from the Christian worldview, then I think eliminating the gray area is necessary um, because rights from our creator uh, and in the Christian worldview, the creator is is the Judeo-Christian God. It is the God of Judaism. It's the God of Christianity. Uh, no matter which one of those that you hold, uh, the majority of religion in the United States, um, from the creator, the creator of the Bible, the creator of the world, which is the Judeo-Christian God, uh, does determine that life is life, that life is given by God, that it is conception. Um, now, there's debate within Christian circles as to what form of contraception, what form of, uh, when is it right to you know, take a birth control pill, different things like that. Um, But when we're talking strictly about abortion after the conception has has been done, um, when is it proper terminate? And when is this person a person in regards to the 14th Amendment? Well, that person is is a person. The the fetus in the womb is a person. The fetus in the womb is going to be a person. Uh, The fetus in the womb is not going to be um, a non-person. There's no chance that the fetus in the womb is going to uh, uh, come out of the birth canal as a non. And so the 14th Amendment, all persons born, well, when are they born? Is is it is that strictly was that strictly meant uh, when child comes out of the birth canal and then umbil- and the umbilical cord is cut? Um, says born or naturalized. And so um, the debate on that is strictly on the word person and born. And so when you look at those two words, um, the debate rages over that. But in the debate on abortion, the debate is not over that. Um, the debate between pro-life and pro-choice is not over life. The debate on pro-choice on the debate on abortion, pro-choice and pro-life is fought in the area of right, uh, a woman's right to choose, uh, a woman's right to do whatever she wants to do with her body. Um, and then once again, you're getting into the issue of right. Who gives you this right? Who gives the woman the right? 
over her body. Uh, who establishes this right? Um, regardless, if you want to take the view, uh, Jay Scott's view, the agnostic view of such rights, or if you want to take the Christian view of such, um, regardless, the, the right comes from a creator. Now, you can take the agnostic view of the creator, uh, you can take the Christian view of the creator, but you have to take a view of a creator, uh, because the document says creator. <laughs> the document does not say that we have inalienable rights from man. And so you have to take the point of view of the creator on when a person is a person and when a right is given. Um, if you don't, then you're not in line with the country documents that you support. If you are a Democrat or a Republican and you have been elected to serve this country, um, and that's what you are, you're elected to be a servant of the people of this country, and you are elected to abide by the documents of this country, then you have to look at the documents and you have to understand them and you have to interpret them. And that's what the Supreme Court does. Um, the legislator uh, can look at the ebb and flows of the culture and sort of may, you know, put forward amendments and things, things of this nature for what the people or for what they perceive. It. But the Supreme Court is to rule as the words are, are there. And so uh, Roe v. Wade is bad law because it's not supported by the 14th Amendment. And that's what mostly show. But in regards to what the 14th Amendment actually says, um, in my view, persons born has to be looked at in the context of the creator and the rights that are given by them, whoever you think that creator may be. Um, and in that case, uh, the 14th Amendment, in my view, does support right of even the unborn because the unborn is is a viable living thing that is going to be born and is going to be a human. And so uh, where I believe that there's life in the womb, even though it's not born, it is going to be born. And that's how I think that, um, it, it, and I guess I should say, it's silly to me to think that the founding father would have looked at that in any other way, would have looked at it at a fetus in the womb as something that was not viable to be born a human and something that would not have had protection under the 14th Amendment, but but would have thought the 14th Amendment to be something that would allow a woman to have the right to terminate the unborn, uh, the fetus in, in the womb. I find that very difficult to believe based on founding fathers' writings, uh, based on the fact that they understood their creator. They might have had, as we have already seen on this podcast, they might have had different ideas of exactly who the creator creator was, or uh, or the theology behind the creator, whether they were a deist, uh, whether um, they were a monotheist, uh, whether they uh, prayed to the God of the Bible, or whether Thomas Jefferson was creating his own Bible because uh, he wanted to leave parts out of it, or however it is. And, you know, we, we understand the differences of the thoughts of the founding father on their idea of God and the creator, but they all had an idea of God and the creator, and it's in the document. And the God or creator is responsible for life. And and that life is person, um, and it's a person in the womb, even though it's a person that isn't born. So why the logic then say all persons born or naturalized, subject to the jurisdiction thereof, are citizens of the United States, and no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United? Why would that apply to a woman's right to choose, and not to the life of the human being that has not quite made it out of the birth canal? Yet? And I think that's the if you were really to get down to the Fourth Amendment, that is that is the debate that would rage over that particular part of the um, but then we would be focused on life we were talking about if we were just going to debate that then that would be a debate that we could have constitutional specifically to the amendment um, but what this gets turned into is the right of a person who is born or the mother to do what they want with their body and have privacy over that and have and and not have the state create a law which tells the woman what she can or can't do even though there's other laws that tell us what we can and can't do uh, obviously 
movie, but that's how the 14th Amendment is being used and inappropriately being used in the case of Roe v. Wade. But I think that the debate needs to be over that. And I think if the debate is over this, that the debate is won by the right. The debate the debate is won on the side of life. But we've turned it into a debate over right. Without even having a debate over where those rights come from, rights are just something that pop out of the air, uh, or rights are something that is granted to us by human beings and legislators. Obviously, it's not the case. And so that, unless you change, unless you amend the Constitution or change the Constitution or come up with a different Constitution, um, come up with a different Declaration of Independence, come up with different documents, um, you aren't able to have to win a debate on life. But you can win a debate on choice. And so we're talking about rights of, of people. You don't want to talk about the origin of the rights, but you want to talk about rights as it relates to, I have the right to do what I want as a human being and the state can't make a law again. Well, what's the origin of that? The origin of that is a creator. And if a creator gives you a right, then then you then then you have to talk about life. And so we don't want to talk about that word creator. We want to talk about persons. We want to talk about born. Uh, we want to talk rights, but we don't want to talk about uh, because then that makes us talk about life. And that gets the debate over abortion back needs to be, which is on the specific idea of life. And then when you get to that, you can even have an agnostic like J. Scott Harden come to the idea along with his Christian friend that a life should not be terminated, whether it's in the womb or outside of the womb, because that life in the womb is a potential life outside of the womb. And there's no other end result for that life in the womb, but to be a life out of the womb. And so based on that, you can have an agnostic and a Christian agree that that life should not be terminated. Um, and further, uh, there should be no gray areas on them. And this is where I'm probably going to take heat from uh, even people on the pro-life side. Should they listen to podcast? If you take that position, then why does um, rape matter? It's a question that the pro-life side has trouble with. If a if a woman is raped and the result of that rape is a child, is a life, that's inside the mother. Why is it okay to terminate that pregnancy? Because the action of rape is terrible? Yes. Um, is this an awful situation? Yes. Is this something that the innocent life should pay for with death? No. And the answer to that question is no every time. If you have the position that the life in the womb is going to be a potential life outside of the womb, and the life in the womb had no role in this rape other, other than to be conceived. Um, now, I understand the implications, and I'm not uncompassionate toward the implications. And if the mother chose that she doesn't want to look into the eyes of the child and see the rape, then put the child up for adoption. Have someone else raise the child. Um, do something. But don't hold that innocent child um, up to this crime. It just doesn't equate. So um, where some pro-life would say, you know, cases of rape are okay to to have abortion. Well, I would say not if you're going to be consistent. And then, of course, you have the, the, the life of the mother. That is the other one that we hear about. What should we do in case where the life of the mother is at risk? Well, that becomes a decision where it's life for life. So now I can understand how you're going to have to have a conversation about you have one life, you have another life, and how is the life going to be impacted for the person who is actually carrying the child and the child in the womb. Um, and that becomes the topic of conversation of life for life. So I understand that. And I can I can be consistent in uh, being pro-life and understanding that there's two lives <clears throat> that are in jeopardy. And of course, that would become a, a medical situation in specific. What is that? So uh, so that I understand. Um, uh, but you can only have conversations like this focused on the, on the aspect of the life and not the aspect of uh, rights and without talking about where those rights come from. So I guess you can sum up my point of view with saying in in the in, re, in regard to uh, abortion, whether it's the 14th Amendment or whether it's just the idea of abortion itself and what it is, um, I have problems with it when people get off of the idea of what life and uh, because now you're no longer talking about what the true issue of abortion is. And that is, as Jay Scott pointed out, even as an agnostic, that's the idea of life and that you are terminating a life. Now, you may say that life is not born 
born, but you are terminating a life that will be born, that has potential for human life outside the womb, and there's no other course for that fetus to take. So if you're specifically talking in that vein, then I don't think um, that these polls that they talk about, oh, 69% of uh, people um, are for upholding Roe v. Wade. Well, they may not know what Roe v. Wade means. They may not know what striking it down means, and they may not know uh, what the underlying idea of life means in regards to abortion, because all they've really heard is this idea of rights and uh, a woman's right to choose and how this is reproductive health care and all these nuances that we have to talk about abortion in different language. And on this podcast specifically, previous I've talked about language, the impact of language and how uh, language is very important. And, when, and it never becomes more important than in, than in the uh, discussion of abortion uh, because it becomes a very different thing when abortion becomes the language of rights as opposed to the language of life. Persons born, persons born, persons born. I'm calling shenanigans that the writers of the amendment were at all involved with the issue of pre-birth person. When we look at when these group of amendments were passed, 13th Amendment abolishing slavery, 65. 14th Amendment talked about it, 1868. And the 15th Amendment, uh, 1870. So these all took place within months and years of the end of the United States Civil War. And so the topic about which that war was fought wasn't about abortion, and it wasn't about the rights of person prior to being born. The object of the amendment uh, was to abolish slavery, and that was at the core of what, what that was for. And so I'm calling shenanigans on people that want to say persons born has something to do with, as Roe v. Wade and its advocates argue, this has something to do with a right to a person's privacy. No, it doesn't. That's not what the writers of the amendments were talking about. That's not what Andrew Johnson, who was the president after Lincoln in the 1860s, was talking about. That's not what Abraham Lincoln was talking about. That is what some liberal justices interpreted it as in 1973 in the Roe case. And to help this along a little bit, I want to play a little game on the podcast, which I have never tried before. If listeners like it, maybe we'll play it again. But I'm going to call this J. Scott's case law. The J. Scott case law, and I'm going to say, okay, we'll put the we'll put the 14th Amendment aside. The Supreme Court did what it did in Roe 1973, but I want to do this too. I want to have a little role at a game as to what the founding fathers and writers of the amendments were thinking. So I'm just going to make something up and listeners hopefully can play along. One of the words, one of the phrases that are used in these amendments and elsewhere is the concept of servitude. Servitude, involuntary servitude, the condition of servitude, and we'll get to the particular text because you obviously need some amendment or text to refer to when you play the game of let's have J. Scott make up some case law. But think about what a pre-born life form has to go through. What I mean is they are in the service of their parents, and in particular, biologically, specifically, service of their mother while they are gestating, right? So if the mother eats, then so does the life form. If the mother doesn't eat, then the life form must also comply. If the mother turns left in the road instead of to the right, where is that unborn child turning? It's turning left, just like the mother did. If the mother dies, the odds are extremely high that that life form will also, and so forth. They're in service of this. Play along with me here, listeners. And so I wanted to take a look at the 15th Amendment. Don't worry, much, much shorter than the Amendment 14th that we talked about. But it says clearly in the 15th Amendment, 1870, and I quote, the right of citizens of the United States, oh no, not this, yeah, Amendment 15, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States 
or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude, end quote. And I'm just going to remind people the condition of servitude. If you are held against because of your race, color, or condition of servitude, then you cannot be denied the right to vote. And so if you're aborted and you've been in a condition of servitude, and I, I repeat the exact text of the Constitution, condition of servitude. If that's you and you've been in a previous condition of servitude, then your right to vote cannot be denied. If they kill you, if they abort you, then you won't be able to vote. And so your 15th Amendment clause has clearly been violated. It's not some flimsy thing like privacy, which isn't mentioned in the 14th Amendment. But if you want to get technical, it says conditions of servitude. You've been in servitude and now you don't get the right to vote. So therefore, a crime has been committed against J. Scott case law. What do you think about that, L.A.? Well, I think it's certainly more uh, substantiated than 14th Amendment in regards to some privacy issue that's clearly not there. Um, and you take persons born out of it and then redirect it to servitude. Um, I think you can make a, a much better legal case on grounds of that accord rather than 14th Amendment grounds. Uh, so I think there's some validity there. Uh, um, the idea of servanthood, as you pointed out, um, also assumes uh, assumes life, I think. Um, and I think in your case law, you are also assuming life. And I think that most Americans, um, and I think most courts would have to, would also have to assume life at some point for the unborn. And uh, regardless if you want to get into 10 weeks, 5 weeks, 20 weeks, you know, 30 weeks, whatever, whatever it is, whatever kind of gray area you want to get into, at some point you have to assume life. If at some point you would have to assume servanthood, um, I don't think there's many that would not prescribe life to the fetus for the entire period of gestation. Um, I think it's, I, although you do have some radical leftists that, uh, you know, want to actually um, make abortion okay through the full term of pregnancy, which is pretty crazy, but uh, but it's out there. But I think it's a minority position. So I think J. Scott case law could have a chance to prevail um, and should have a better chance to prevail than Roe v. Wade. I uh, appreciate at least one vote for the new J. Scott's case law game. And uh, like I say, if, if people find it of interest, I'll pluck out another word from the Constitution and go ahead and make up reasons for why that is and what it meant. And I'll disregard the context of the time, the origin of the thoughts of the persons who wrote it. We can skip all that stuff and I'll just make up whatever I want based on my own interpretation of language and that'll be fair game. Um, one of the questions I had when, when this Alito uh, decision was leaked is, what is it that the left is so afraid of? In other words, if Roe v. Wade is, is stricken down and it's up to the states and sub-states will allow various abortions and others not. And we can all go to those states, presumably, that we want to. What is What are the real objections to putting caps and limits on a child's right to live? Now, I take a look at this logically, and I see it's very messy. <clears throat> the reasoning of, of people, which is, like I said, if there's a heartbeat, or if it's viable, or if it's in the second trimester, or if the many, many of these different, you know, decision trees, is, and then you pick and choose when that life is going to be. It seems to me, <clears throat> with logic and reason, we can accurately say, if the sperm and egg never touched each other, then that's a fork in the road. If you go back and say, this never happened, the two entities did not touch each other, uh, no conception occurred, in other words, then anything before that has nothing to do with abortion. And so I hear folks on the left saying what the implications of the ban on Roe, overturning of Roe v. Wade might be. And it, it's pretty wild and strange to me what some of these implications are. There'll be fewer abortions. None of them really say that, but that's one of the implications. A good one, I might 
add, but the implications that they do cite are that now, since this type of case law mean will mean less, what other type of case laws will be possibly thrown out in the future? And so they take the is, is, instance of Roe and they go back and say, well, maybe they'll reverse uh, something like Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, ending segregation. Segregation was imposed in the late 19th century. Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896. This, five decades later, the Supreme Court reversed it and said, it's okay, who's to say five days, five decades later, they won't go and, and reimpose segregation. So what they say is that some of these rights are not within the Constitution, and therefore they may be invalidated, such as uh, interracial marriage. I couldn't believe when I heard that, but I've heard it many times. Uh, or uh, gay marriage, something that's more recent. We passed gay marriage in every state, I think it was in 2010. Uh, or transgender rights. So, Surely, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe the new uh, J. Scott case case law game can. I'll find up some some way to pick a word out of the Constitution and, and then say this is in support of transgender rights. But they they worry. It seems to me, if I'm to take some of the left folk at their word and presume they're authentic in their expression, they worry that some of these other relationships will be affected by the removal of Roe v. Wade. What do you think about this, LA? And and will they in the future, if Roe is stricken down, will Supreme Court justices later say, well, this gay marriage thing that's not really part of the Constitution and has precedent. We're going to strike that down too. Uh, or you can't really have you know a four-star admiral who's a transgender in charge of your health committee deciding on transgender gender orientation rights. We're done with that too. Or will they even go back so far as to say, well, you know, the founding fathers in the 1780s probably weren't thinking about interracial marriage, so we should we should somehow strike this down too. Where does it stop? Where does it end? What kind of other case law will be accepted or refused? Alito's been pretty clear that the only case that he's interested, the only topic he's interested in, in his opinion, that was leaked, is to the issue of abortion and nothing else. He was very very specific in that clause. And yet I hear left-leaning folk, some more radical than others, saying the striking down of Roe is the end of the civilized world as we know it. What does Roe mean for the future of the Supreme Court and the laws in the United States? L.A., what do you think about things like that? Well, uh, once again, the the overturning of Roe means that, simply mean, not the end of the world, and the world doesn't collapse and the earth doesn't stop rotating on its axis. But what does happen is that the decision goes back to the state over whether or not abortion should be legal. And that's really all that happened. And in my view, that's where it should be. So I don't have any problems with saying I stand with Alito. Um, I don't even have to get into after that whether or not I'm pro-life or pro-choice. I can simply say, I say that I stand with Alito and, and his um, interpretation that Roe is bad law and that abortion should go back to the state. No problems there. The world doesn't end. If you want an abortion, you can go to California. If you don't want to have abortion legal, you can go to one of, like, I think it's upward near uh, 19 states, which could make abortion illegal in the state. Um, you can go there. So I, I don't think it's uh, some tragic end of the world scenario. I think it's obvious why we want to make abortion, or I'm sorry, we want to make Roe v. Wade being overturned a something that um, is perceived to be the end of the world. Uh, because for the left, um, the this idea of abortion is a religious and um, that may seem incongruent to listeners of the podcast but when you see the reaction of somebody like Elizabeth Warren who who almost goes into fits over this idea that Roe v. Wade may be overturned um, why would it elicit such a reaction from her and others as Jay Scott has pointed out I, I pick out Elizabeth Warren uh, because literally this woman almost looked like she is about ready to break down in tears and, and go into a fit over this thing um, and it's because to her uh, this is a real 
this is a religious event. This is uh, the the idea that um, that Roe v. Wade could be overturned is something that the left has the passion uh, that a religious person would over uh, the Trinity. <laughs> so, uh, it, it's very much on the same par with with the left. So why is that? Uh, that's a that's a very good question. Um, and I have my own thoughts on on why that is. And it's it, to me, uh, it goes back to the discussion of what is abortion really dealing? Uh, what are we really talking about? Uh, are we talking about life or are we talking about uh, reproductive rights or, or uh, the right of a, a woman to be able to do whatever she wants to do with her body? Uh, what exactly are we talking Well, to the left, um, it's not something that, that is specifically about life. It's about a human being's um, autonomy. And the autonomy of the human being is something that is paramount to the left. And from a religious perspective, uh, from the Christian worldview, uh, human beings are not autonomous. Uh, and that's a big problem for human beings to deal with. When we talk about rights that are given to us from the Creator, what does that mean? It means that we're not autonomous. It means that we don't have, uh, we aren't the the autonomous creatures that we may desire to be. We don't have final say. We 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 aren't the rulers of our own destiny. This, this is not who human beings are. It comes down to who are human beings? What, what rights do we actually have? Um, are we the masters of our own destiny? Or is the Creator sovereign? Do we have to listen to those things? Or can we do whatever it is that we want? Um, th- this is really what this fight over. This is why you see the, the reaction that you see. We can talk about the 14th Amendment. We can talk about constitutionality. Um, and there's, and rightly so, we should have those con- we should have those conversations because th- these are our founding doctrine. That's all well and good. But for the left, and necessarily for radical left, this is fight over autonomy, over who's in charge, over exactly who is in control of what. Um, and to win this, to win this argument, win this debate, and to make something like abortion the law of the land, to make something like transgenderism a normality, uh, to bring down the institution of marriage and to turn and to redefine marriage into something that is something other than uh, what happens between a man and a woman. To do all of these things is the religion of the left. And um, it's it's why it's become so radicalized. And it's it's fight that we're really having underneath uh, the ideas of constitutionality. And that's what I think. That's why you have Elizabeth Warren breaking down. Uh, that's why you have uh, Democrats uh, gathering together and saying we're going to kill the filibuster and we're going to create a uh, federalized legalization of abortion. That's why you have the fear from the left, as Jay Scott points out, that, oh, next is Obergefell. Oh, next is we're going to go back and find a way to uh, make interracial marriage an issue. Um, not only has Alito said that that's not going to happen, but that's complete conjecture. That's complete. Um, that, that's just ideas that spring fear over um, trying to scare people into ways of thinking that the world is going to end if this happens. And the reason behind that is because we can't deal with the fact that our rights do come from a creator. We can't deal with the fact that the abortion argument is about life. Uh, and to to accept all that means that we aren't in control and that we aren't an autonomous creature and that we can't just look at the words persons born and creator and rights and make up whatever we want. We can't just create new documents out of whole cloth. We can't just decide that the laws of the land are whatever we want them to be. And um, and that's the end of it because we have to take into consideration this idea that we're not in charge of all. And that's just not something that the, that the left and its current state, radical nature of the left is going to sit by and allow. They want 
full control over. And and Christian, um, logical thinking agnostic, um, those who want to make arguments over life in the pursuit of life, um, those who want to hold cultural norms in check. Let's let's remember there um, that the it's not the right side that has moved. Uh, or I should say it's not the right side that is the radical nature. It's not the right side that has moved the mark or that is attempting to move the goal. It's the left. It's the radical left that's attempting to move the goal. They're the ones who are trying to um, say that a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man. And then when someone on the right says, wait a minute, we need to check that. And then they're the ones calling us crazy. And that doesn't quite work. So why are they doing all this? Why are they trying to create a sky is falling scenario? Because they truly have fears that the pendulum may swing back the other way. And not that we're going to put people in chains again and that uh, we're going to go back to uh, older ways of thinking. That's really not, I mean, that's silly on its face. I think mostly agree on. So why would you do something that's silly? Well, because you have other motives. And the motives are we've gained this ground. We've changed the culture in certain ways. We've created new norms. We're on the way to breaking down these documents that have words like creator and born and persons and rights and life in them that we don't like, that we want to change. Um, and they don't want to give up that ground. So it's not that they don't want to go back to certain pieces of legislation. They simply don't want to retreat from the ground that they've gained both politically and in the cult, um, which is moving very rapidly toward a a, a new foundation, a, a new set of principles, not Judeo-Christian principles, not a document with the word creator in it, but a something new uh, where that is torn down. And in its place, we've built up something man-centered where we can be in control and in charge of what the country and ultimately uh, what what the world does. And because we think as human beings that we can create something better in that back. Um, I've heard many atheists say that we could write a Bible much better than the biblical author with less error and with less problematic content. And that's the, think- that's the true thinking of the left. Someone like myself um, has an archaic way of thinking. Oh, you, you know, you, what's next? We're going to go back and ban interracial marriage, like, you know, we're some some backwoods, uh, backward thinking troglodyte or something. Um, that's really who the elite uh, think that think that most of us are. Uh, they have the answer. They have the knowledge and they can create something much better out of this whole thing than these silly documents that we have to abide. So just pick words, just find ways to tweak it, find ways to turn it into whatever we want to turn it in. Forget about this context Jay Scott's talking about. Forget about what Abraham Lincoln thought. He was a racist anyway, probably. Forget about what what Thomas Jefferson was thinking. He was certainly a slave owner. So forget about all this. We need to tear all this down and we need to create things that are much better than what the founding fathers could have possibly because we know what that is because we're the great humans of this age and and uh, and we know what's best for ourselves and we want to decide who gives us our rights. We want to decide when we can kill that baby or terminate that life. Uh, you know, we want to make those decisions. We don't want to be held in check by some creator being. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't want to play that game anymore. So we have a new game and the new game is not the constitutionality. It's not the uh, the J. Scott game that we just played and had some fun with. It's the new game of we are the radical left and we are here to create a new foundation, new principle for all of us to follow. And if you can't get on board with that, then we're going to have to silence you. We're going to have to cancel you. We're going to have to do whatever it is that we can do in order to uh, push this this new thing forward. That way. And abortion is just one of those things. It happens to be one of the most important uh, because it deals directly with uh, you know a person's body and the issue of life. So it's one of the most important things in the religion of the left. Uh, 
but and that's why they're standing so hard for it. But it's actually just one in a in a Kaga thing that um, that's very important to the left because they have to remove these issues. Uh, they have to remove the institution of marriage. They have to remove the right the the right of life. They have to remove these basic foundational principles in order to create this brave new world that's on the horizon. Yeah, it's going to be challenging too to see in what ways the left will attack decision to strike down Roe v. Wade if we, we haven't talked about a decision that has been made either. But it seems likely, based on Alito's opinion, the decision will be struck down. In what ways will the left attempt to prevent this from happening or challenge this in some way? Well, there are going to be a variety of possible methods, one of which we've seen already. In the case of the leak that we talked about earlier, it's bad enough that the opinion was leaked so that popular uproar may influence the the decision of the justices while in progress. But secondly, now we have protesters at the homes of Supreme Court justices themselves, an act which is, my understanding, specifically illegal, showing up to a judge's house and threatening or protesting or messing with them, yard, in their street, not legal. I don't think it ever has been. Uh, or will will the people on the left attempt to do, do a more framework-based opposition to Roe v. Wade, by which I mean packing the Supreme Court? changing their numbers so that it isn't nine, maybe it's 13 or 19 or 119, all full of liberal appointed judges. And now the five or six conservatives on the court will be outnumbered 10 to one or in any other way. Uh, will they attempt to uh, add new states to the union? And therefore, whenever we confirm these judges, for example, you'll have other new Puerto Ricos of the world or other supposed liberal places. Uh, should you open up the borders so that millions of and millions of, of people can enter the country and then you will assume or steer them toward liberal votes in the future. Uh, it seems to me that the Constitution, when it is said that the Constitution is a living document, one of my favorite things about it, one of my favorite things about the Founding Fathers in general was that they did not presume that they had a final answer. Here in the case of abortion, pro-choice, pro-life standpoint, we were really talking about the interaction between two major forces, liberty and equality. And these are two elements of a social contract by which people organize in an attempt to get along versus you know, some caveman thing. Uh, but when larger societies gather, there has to be some understanding. Both liberty and equality are noble sentiments and discussed by the founding fathers and their enlightened contemporaries very much. But if you want maximize liberty, your body, your choice, your autonomy, your rights, when does that brush up against equal rights? an equal autonomy and an equal place in the universe and an equal right to live case of mother and unborn child. When these conflict, then there you have a problem. And it seems to me that's where we need uh, laws and elaboration to hammer out exactly where where those limits are. In the case of, you know, the current state of our judicial process in America, I'm very concerned that opponents of conservative majority will try to find means both structural and personal to prevent those justice from deciding upon the case as required and allowed by the laws we're all supposedly sworn to follow America. Constitution is a living document and it seems to me that there are two ways of addressing that concept and reality that the founding fathers left for us. They didn't presume that they had every single right answer so they left the constitution a little bit open-ended, capable of being changed. That's what is meant by the living document. You could have an additional amendment that says we herein denounce, violate, and overturn 
the entire constitution and it's over. If you did all the requirements of an amendment, you could cancel the U.S. constitution and the U.S. government democratically. Uh, in the absence of that, if you're not going to subvert the constitution democratically, then you do it by force. Just as the founding fathers had a revolution, so too could generations of the future revolt against a government they see as tyrannical. Instead of doing that, the founding fathers, though, left it open-ended. If you really want to change the law, here is a way to do so, and that's through the process of a Then, you could have an amendment that said abortion is hearing legal everywhere, no matter what, up until the child is of the age of 18. You could say whatever you want, if it passes everything. Or you could have also a law specifically enumerating right to life and say when the amendment framers wrote the words all persons born, they meant all persons, period. And, or at least we do, and now we're saying it. So here's your new amendment that says that. These are legal methods. I wonder how far the left will go, legal or otherwise, to subvert this decision. Uh, in the case of Roe v. Wade, I've heard people on the left claim that the all of these conservative justices were lying during their confirmation hearing. So I went back and looked at the, the relevant transcript of every single one of them. Uh, when Justice Kavanaugh was asked if he would overturn Roe v. Wade, he didn't say specifically yes or no. When Barrett was asked that, when Alito was asked that, when Roberts was asked that. None of them ever said, yes, I'm here to overturn Roe v. Wade, or yes, I'm here to support Roe v. Wade. That's not what they said. They demurred. They said, we can't really speak to the specifics of law, or we do believe in precedents, almost like we believe in precedents, but that's not the same as constitution. Or even better, they could have said, we believe in precedents, except when we don't. Anything like that would have been more akin to what they did say. But the idea that the justices lied, for example, in order to get their confirmations didn't actually happen. How far would the left go to put a stop to this Roe v. Wade decision, LA? They'll go as far as is necessary. They'll do whatever's necessary, um, and they'll take whatever measure is necessary. Uh, they'll do whatever it takes, uh, legal or not, constitution or not. Um, the leaker uh, is held up as like a hero. Um, the uh, there there was nothing said about the leak about the leaker or the leak from the administration officially condemning it. Um, it's uh, it's by all means necessary. It's all hands on deck. Um, over a, an issue that simply would turn, uh, the, if, if they, they act as if, and people think as if, overturning a Roe v. Wade means that abortion is made illegal across the land permanently, which is not the case. The returning of this to the states, it's actually a very democratic uh, stance that allows uh, voting to be done on the situation, allows more control, more local control of the abortion, which, um, you know, should be applauded. But it isn't. And why isn't it? Because the religion of the left. It's a, uh, it's a core fight point for the left in regard to its belief system, its worldview. It's a necessary cog in that whole thing, um, as I pointed out earlier, and they will stop at nothing to preserve the right of this um, and, and and to make sure that this cog in, in, the, in the wheel of, of their worldview is not dismantled and not, and not kept. Uh, it goes deeper than just a woman's right to choose. Uh, the fight over a woman's right to choose is not because the left concerned about the rights of women necessarily. Uh, they're concerned about the the uh, autonomy of the human being in general. They want to preserve the control over that. And a woman's right to choose is just a way that they found that they can fight for that. Um, because a woman's right to choose is not what the fight is over. and re uh, Not what should be over. It should be over the issue of life, when life begins, and what we do as a nation, as a culture, as a community with that life. Period. End of story. But we don't make it that because that's not what the left concerned with. That's certainly not the radical left, which uh, does control the Democratic Party at this point, which is why people like Jay Scott have left the Democrat the Democrat Party, why people like Elon Musk uh, are, are fighting for the right to communicate, it's why people like Joe Rogan are waking up to this, I, to this reaction of the left. 
I think um, what this is going to continue to do is show the true colors of the left, what they're actually fighting for, what their perspective and worldview actually is. Um, and uh, some people even now are saying the quiet part out loud if you listen close. So I think that's really, really what we're seeing. And that's why we're getting the reaction. Getting the left is certainly going to stop at nothing or deserve this uh, this perceived right uh, that they have to do what they want to do and have the control that they have. And it's going to, and it shows itself across the board in, in multiple issues. Um, that's what transgenderism is about. That's what uh, Bergefell is about. Um, it's about taking back the autonomy of the human being, about taking back control away from the creator, placing it in the hands of man. Uh, and that's the religion of the left. Um, that's particularly how I see the issue. Otherwise, I, like I said before, you, you just don't get this kind of reaction out of simply a legislation that is shot down. That just turns the decision over abortion back. Should not be something that puts Elizabeth Warren into tears, um, puts the radical left into such a frenzied state or that prompts someone on the court, clerk or otherwise, whoever actually leaked documents and put uh, the justices' lives in danger um, and, and put such political pressure where it shouldn't be applied because that's how important this issue is to them. Uh, and that's the links that they'll go to. So um, a very interesting topic, this idea of Roe v. Wade um, is going to continue uh, throughout uh, the next couple months and into the summer. Um, we'll see exactly uh, what goes down and and what actually ends up happening between now and when the decision actually comes down. And then uh, we'll closely follow if the decision does come down as it's stated um, and that comes to fruition, then uh, we'll see what happens in the state and we'll see uh, which states go which way and what legislation is put forward and what states ban abortion, what states legalize it. Um, and if the Democrats are able to uh, put uh, federal legislation in place that impacts it and what lengths they'll actually go to preserve this right to uh, to uh, kill the unborn. Um, kind of hard to believe that uh, such passion is involved in uh, in allowing the, the death of an unborn child, which if we were really having that conversation, uh, that's how. Uh, final thoughts from you. I think if Roe v. Wade is settled and the Supreme Court does make a final ruling on it, we should have another episode about Roe v. Wade and we should go over a defense of what life is and we should review a little bit on the data end of just how many people have died during the last 50 years um, and what the impact of that is it's the greatest single tragedy I can think of in the history of the United States of America, the death of many, many millions of unborn children. It's bigger than the Civil War. It's bigger than the American Revolution. It's bigger than the Civil Rights Movement. It's bigger than World War II. It eclipses them all combined in terms of death total. Um, and it's one of the most glaring and horrible issues we have to face. That being said, the Constitution is a living document. It can be changed. It's hard, but it is possible, especially when overwhelming numbers of Americans believe, believe in the thing that they're going to change. And second, Secondly, people who have disagreed with the decision of Roe v. Wade have, by and large, been living with it, respecting the law as interpreted and pronounced and, and judged upon by our Supreme Court. We've been doing that for 50 years under Roe v. Wade. I urge people who oppose this forthcoming decision to strike it down, I urge them to give 50 years a try even when they don't disagree, even when they don't agree with the Supreme Court. What does 50 years look like if you respect the system even if you personally disagree? By all means, advocate. Vote. Make your case, make your view heard, but respect the decision of the Supreme Court, whatever that may be, um, and realize 
that our system of governance in America can be changed is living doc. Founding fathers knew what they were doing in that regard. And I, for one, want to say I'm really excited to do more of these episodes of Up Your Dialogue. Welcome everybody back. I'm glad LA is here. And we are here to stay. We're moving forward with this podcast. And I'm really excited about the topics and what's going to come. Thank you. I'm excited to hear uh, an agnostic with a with a with the understanding that life is important and that um, fight for the cause of life and to see abortion as really the evil that it is and, and the death that it's caused. Uh, we, we understand that from the Christian worldview, but it can be understood from a non-Christian worldview. It can be understood from someone who simply looked at what is going on and says that the killing of the unborn is not something that we should justify by some privacy act in the 14th Amendment. Um, that's certainly what Roe did. It certainly should be overturned. It should be not only sent back to the states, the states should look at this in the same way and come to conclusions in their own state with their own state laws as to how we as a culture handle the life issue. And the direction that this country will go in will be determined by how our culture and how our government and how our system looks at life and how it values this life. Um, And the radical left and its opponent are going to fight this battle and it goes much deeper than just the issue of abortion and Roe v. So undoubtedly, we will come up with this topic again in the coming months and we will approach this topic in other podcasts as it has many different aspects of this that, that go across many different topics, whether they're philosophical, theological, political, or otherwise. It's what we talk about here on Up Your Dialogue in a way that is courteous, in a way that brings worldviews together, in a way that is non-combative, and we hope that this type of um, this environment, this this approach to communication, whether you agree with it or not, whether you agree with Jay Scott, myself, or not, whether you agree with opinions that are stated on this podcast or not, at least communication is being done in a way that um, can be understood, be clearly put forward, and um, and has results. Uh, that's really what is one of the most important things that we have to get back to if we're going to be able to even coexist in a country together as human beings. Coexist, a word that I really, really detest. And uh, <laughs> But there it is. There it is. I said it. Uh, as Jay Scott said, we thank you for joining us on this episode of the Open Dialogue Podcast, and we look forward to seeing you on the next one.